This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonsby. Welcome. You like HBO? I like HBO. HBO takes a lot of credit for its shows. Shows that aren't TV, they're HBO. It's been that way for 30 years. HBO has always been the cutting edge of television, though I really don't understand how most people watched it back then without a satellite dish. Seems only people with a lot of money could get it way back when. Funny thing is, for whatever reason, in the late 80s and early 90s, I saw HBO a lot. The Disney Channel, too. And my family didn't even have cable. For whatever reason, the proximity of my little town and family farm to the United States uh, allowed us to catch HBO and the Disney Channel and their ilk just out of the air. I'd see shows like Tales from the Crypt, which I was just the right age to appreciate, and Dream On and the Gary Shandling Show, which I was not. So, as time has gone on, from Sex in the City to The Sopranos to The Newsroom to Game of Thrones, HBO's TV is usually pretty high quality and often has a significant impact on the cultural zeitgeist, despite the fact that many, many of us watch without actually having HBO. You know what I'm talking about. You know how we do it. Mm-hmm. Today I'm going to talk about the anthology series True Detective, which is one of the finest shows ever made over three seasons so far. I mean, I think it's one of the finest anyway. I'm not going to pretend I fully understand every part of every season, especially not the second season. Uh, but the first and third, what I can get of them are brilliant. First, before I start showering this show with praise, let's take a second to discuss the title. The title is at least 50% a lie. The protagonists are always detectives, but the stories aren't true. Okay, sometimes they're based on true events, but we all know that could apply to the Jetsons if we wanted it to. I hate it when fiction uses the adjective true. It's cliche, and it's a lie, and it sounds lazy. I have the same pet peeves around things called American anything or protagonists named Jack. It's like you just didn't want to put the work in to come up with better. That's about all the bad I have to say about this show, though, quite frankly. It is that brilliant. The first season is a work of art, and the second and third seasons are very strong on their own. Of those two, I like the third better, probably because it was more like the first season. That may make it sound like I don't like the experimental nature of the second. I do, but I much more like the, the timeline play that the first and third seasons have. If you, if you don't know the show, the first and third seasons operate uh, when the main characters are first getting to know each other, 
um, investigating a crime. The, the, the second timeline is where the crime that looked like it was solved sort of comes back. And the third timeline is, is an actual resolution um, when the characters are older. Um, obviously, because they age as normal people do. But um, the, the timelines are played simultaneously. Like, they jump back and forth between them so that each of them gets to its sort of conclusion at the same time at the same general time in the show. So, let me be perfectly clear. Season one is a perfect piece of television. As good as the second and third get, and on their own, like I said, they're very good, they can only be compared to the first season, and by that they are naturally lesser. Not terribly lesser, but lesser. This is not fair, but it's factual. The first season is perfect. The only things I've seen as good or better are several of the seasons of Game of Thrones, um, The Newsroom, yes, those are both HBO, um, the first seasons of Netflix's Daredevil, and uh, the first season, the first two seasons of House of Cards on Netflix, and all of the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock. They're, they're company for for the first season of True Detective. It's that good. It's that perfect. It's well-written, gloriously shot, stupendously directed, unbelievably scored. Look at the adverbs it makes me use. And it's, it, it's made me believe in actors again. Okay? If that little House of Cards reference made you just a touch squeamish, I understand. Kevin Spacey was my favorite actor for 20 years. And I've learned that you shouldn't like actors. You can like performances, but you shouldn't like actors as people. They will disappoint you. They will fail. It's a lot like musicians who get into issues. We ask high school dropouts to opine on world events, and we lean on this. Um, we rely on the thoughts and opinions of these people too heavily. But I digress. I have never thought much of either Woody Harrelson or Matthew McConaughey as actors. By never thought much, I literally mean I hadn't ever considered them. Harrelson was fine. He was the dude from Cheers. He was great in The People vs. Larry Flint. Um, he was in Natural Born Killers, a favorite movie of mine in the 90s. He was great in Zombieland, but I kind of felt whatever about him. I didn't follow him or care much. He appeared in things that I watched. And McConaughey was all right. All right. All right. Listen, I hate Dazed and Confused. I've never understood its popularity. I've seen it twice and liked it less the second time. Uh, it's one of those movies that you're supposed to like, especially if you grew up when I grew up, but I didn't. I also didn't really have a lot of that 70s nostalgia that we had in the 90s that is now being nostalgized now for the 90s, which confuses and makes me untrusting. Um, anyways, and of course, Days and Confused was McConaughey's first show on the scene. He was, he was a rom-com boy toy who I was jealous of because my wife has a crush on him. Uh, his best performances outside of 
rom-coms that I never watched, uh, at least not intentionally. Maybe they were on buses or something. Uh, but, but, but other than that, there was a, his turn as a lawyer in Amistad and as, as a talent agent in the satirical and delightful Tropic Thunder. He's, he was always pretty but lame to me. The tune changed after True Detective, and from that to Dallas Buyers Club, Inception, anything. A front mouth whistle talking aside. I can't do it that well, I guess, but you know what I mean. He's always up here, a little bit less less Arkansas and more Texas, but it's, it's just all front speaking. But, but this Texan, he can act. And as good as Harrelson is, as the conflicted family man, Marty Hart, uh, the detective good old boy who can't keep it in his pants and can justify his every action, despite Harrelson's performance, the first season is run by, about, and through McConaughey. He plays the traumatized and slightly, maybe quietly, neurotic, Rust Cole. He gets all the best scenes and all the best lines, and a man whose first claim to fame will always be his, be his looks and his smooth drawl. He makes an easy sale that he's sick, strange, and unlikable. This, this charismatic human being, all season long, you truly believe this guy is not somebody I want to be in the room with. Just how he holds himself. That's pretty good. Cole's character is the reason uh, this is not just a detective show. Marty exists to flesh out the detective, to show how it plagues his home life. Uh, When he's being interviewed in the 2012 timeline, the latest of the three narratives, he discusses the norms of divorce with himself and other detectives. Um, It's the plague of the family man detective. Uh, And it's picked up on uh, by Colin Farrell's... uh, Ray uh, Velicori in season two and by Mahershala Ali's Wayne Hayes in season three. But the Cole character, McConaughey's character, is above and beyond expectations and delivers some of the show's most intriguing moments, the key moments, the best moments. Um, For example, in episode one, he talks about existence. And I'm going to just quote, small pieces of it but this first scene of the two of them riding around in a car and him talking about the meaninglessness of existence makes you realize you're you're watching something that's more than just a, a, a detective show quote i think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution we became too self-aware nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself we are creatures that should not exist by natural law We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self. An accretion of sensory experience and feeling programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody, when in fact, everybody is nobody. He ends this with the statement uh, that we should do the world a favor by stopping, by being the last generation and just enjoying the ride, um, he says it like this, quote, Maybe the honorable thing for our species to do is deny our programming, stop reproducing, walk hand in hand into extinction, one last midnight, brothers and sisters, 
opting out of a raw deal. It's pretty explosive in thought. Um, and it's and it sets up Cole's character, but it also sets up a lot of what's explored in the in the narrative itself. In the later episodes, he describes existence as a flat repeating disc where the only release is death, and we may not even get there. The, the setting's Louisiana, and as the as they investigate, they go to a church service, a tent service. Um, and this is the beginning of an episode, and Cole just scoffs, just won't even entertain religion. He says, he looks at the, the people there, and he says, quote, I see a propensity for obesity, poverty, a yearn for fairy tales, folks putting what few bucks they do have into a little whisker, wicker basket being passed around. I think it's safe to say nobody here is going to split the atom. He's he's just vindictive when it, at his look at at um, religion and and uh, it's consistent to his character all through. Um, the the thing that I find um, interesting is uh, if you've listened to other episodes of my podcast, you know. Although I'm not a religious person myself, I see appeal to it, and and maybe I'm a touch of a religious apologist, although I'm not apologizing on my own behalf. But I, I find militant atheism as hard to take as, as uh, militant religiosity. Uh, and yet, um, and, and Marty, who, who flirts with religion, we're told, although we never see him at a particularly religious point in his life, he, he's offended by this, by this certainty, right? Um, the things that, that, that Russ Cole says are frightening to us, but he, on the other side of it, is completely at peace with his existence. He knows what's what, and so he's got that certainty that not fearing about the future provides, because there isn't one. Um. A minor blink and you'll miss it theme in in the all of the shows, but in the first season is redemption, both for Marty and for Rust. It's biggest for Rust Cole because his existence is entirely leaning to tragedy. He's a he's a nihilist, and his nihilism um, just sort of pushes him to that end. But then he doesn't get it. He, this nihilistic unbeliever sees a possible connection to what he has lost beyond this world. He applies this new knowledge to the world, the good and bad, and he sees his purpose in it anew. This is at the very end of the show. Um, this is a very cynical show in most ways, and it ends with a, a surprising positive catharsis. Not all the bad is beaten, but some good has been done. Two men feel redeemed, and one man who is still an unbeliever and still a nihilist feels there is something he has felt. Uh, his logical mind will not accept anything else, a connection with, with those who have gone beyond. Another theme of all three seasons is masculinity, the toxic kind. Um, the show has taken criticism for this, um, for it's it's only having a few female characters, although they're usually very dynamic and fascinating characters. But still, it's a this is a show about men, 
Every man in every season is affected by his job and brings that home to sour his relationships. Tragic pasts like Russ Cole's dead daughter and Hayes' Vietnam experience, Hayes is the Mahershala Ali character from season three, um, they color these men. They, 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 it, it fills them in. Because of the first and third season's triple timelines, we see men with, with these troubled pasts, newly troubled, and then it haunting them across the, the decades. Then there's always a mid-season shootout. Um, in all three seasons, there's a mid-season shootout that makes the case appear to be solved. There's question marks, but it looks like things have been handled. But, of course, the, the main character, the Rusts, the, the, the Hayes, uh, they, they've got their doubts that they've solved it. Um, it haunts them until a resolution of sorts in the final act in the third timeline. It's not, as I said, a perfect resolution in any of the seasons. Good is done, but much good remains undone. The Hayes narrative is complicated by his attempt to finally solve the case that haunts him while suffering the early onset of dementia. There's there's this very creepy scene where he's alone in his house at night and he sees a mysterious car outside. And as he's watching, he's, he's, he's at these sort of um, dementia visions. Uh, he sees his wife, who is now dead, um, talking to him as sort of his conscience in her younger form. And in, in this scene, um, where he's looking out at this, this strange car, slowly these figures begin to stand around him, um, kind of in the shadows with their heads lowered. Because the majority of these are Vietnamese in, in uniforms, we surmise that they're the remembered ghosts of the people he's killed. But one of them is this tantalizing figure of a white man in a suit. And this is foreshadowing events um, that occur in the middle timeline. This is the beauty of these simultaneous narratives across multiple timelines. You have in the final timeline, the, 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 I think it's 2015, foreshadowing an event that we're going to see in a later episode, but the event takes place in 1990, right? It's, that's, that's the fun uh, and the creativity that can be had with, with these multiple time narratives. And it's just a haunting scene. It creeps me out. I'm getting the shivers just thinking about it. And so beyond this haunted, ultra-masculine figure are several even more unsavory themes um, again, something that is consistent across all three seasons. The bad, the evil in these series is big. Um, and the rather cynical idea that the heroes could only do a little good and know that there's more bad left, that's disheartening. There's just as much dark um, as there was before, and there's always more dark in the sky than there are stars. You make stars, you, they burn brightly, but they never light up the darkness completely. We have kidnapping, we have pedophilia, we have cult rights, organized crime, prostitution, racism. The ills of America are paraded through each narrative. 
there's a sense that most people are essentially bad and that we're all drunks um, and lawbreakers. It reminds me, sadly, of the works of, art, of writer Cormac McCarthy, one of the greatest American writers of the past 50 years, but also one of the ones that bothers me because he's so negative. His view of people is so negative. And I don't want to believe or accept that the world is as bad as McCarthy writes. Um, or in the case of show creator Nick uh, Pizzolatto, I think is how you say it. I don't want to believe how McCarthy and he present it is true. People aren't bad to the point being pre presented here. But True Detectives America is a place many of us are not familiar with. It's the America behind the veneer. A place where regular folks are working against a life that is just plotting. Their existence is sad, simple, uninformed, repetitive. There's always tragedy. There's always loss. They turn to God or the bottle, sometimes both. They turn to crime. And there is a fierce libertarian streak running through them. Every detective on every porch is treated with suspicion, if not outright hostility. Um, this is the world of sin. Because it's an anthology series with multiple directors, it doesn't always look the same, but there are moments that stand out uh, aesthetically. The opening credits are famous for imposing um, film over the actors uh, in, in scenes of the show. This creates this haunted teacher in front of the projector effect. The soundtrack of the opening credits and throughout each episode is always noteworthy. Uh, I've got onto some good artists uh, through this show. Um, there's a constancy of playing beefy, gravelly, and very masculine and very sexual artists like T-Bone Bennett and, and, and Leonard Cohen. Um, listen to the soundtrack for an hour and you'll always feel like you smell like secondhand smoke. In every season, the cinematography is gorgeous. There's a lot of driving in this show. Most of the key investigative discussion in the first season, well, and, and all of them, happens with people sitting in a car going over what they have just looked at. Add to that the element of displaying the scenery. The, the three seasons happen in Louisiana, Los Angeles, and Arkansas, respectively. There are a lot of pull-away shots to give a sense of where we are, but it also gives us a feeling of danger. One of the key threats in season one um, is the bayou itself, the swamp. People die or disappear, then a hurricane comes and wipes out another part of the state, and the records of the missing, it's easy, this show says, for a criminal off the grid to hide himself and keep acting. It's just so hard to find anything in, in a place in constant turmoil and decay. And of course, swamps are not forests, right? Swamps are um, putrid, festering places where disease grows. So, as I have said, the first season is a work of peak TV art. It shows you how 
to pack every inch of an episode with meaning rather than with some of the padding that plagues other shows, especially those with uh, too ambitious an episode list. Some of those great Netflix superhero shows I liked always had two or three padding episodes. The origin of a side character, flashbacks, uh, yeah, unnecessary. This is tight storytelling. The second season is good, but try just a little too hard not to be the same as the first. The third season was a compromise and comes fairly close to achieving success, especially across multiple timelines of the first. It's more echoey than the second, um, and for that reason you might call it less ambitious, but for my money, I like the first and third the best, but the second is good. There are confusing bits to all of them. Though the ending comes and provides a conclusion, not everything ever gets wrapped up neatly. Maybe that's the one defense for the only great failing of this show, its title. As I said at the outset, it's a stupid title, calling a fictional anthology series true, even if some of the events are based on a true story. That, by the way, is the falsest phrased in cinema, and yet you're willing to stretch the definition of true to suit this fine show, rather than just as a synonym for honesty. If you do that, you might be onto something. What's true about True Detective is these mostly males and a few women are human, with human failings. Nearly every character discusses where they currently are in their battle with the bottle. There is a constant theme of alcoholism through all of these shows. And honestly, it's, it's not a sale for it. Um, they're haunted by the horrors they investigate and every little victory, even when the major case is solved, comes with the caveat that there's far more bad out there still than good. There's much more dark in the sky than light. But every little light shines. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.